Welcome to another episode of Forward from Brock University. I'm your host, Allison Innes, and as always, I'm here to introduce you to our humanities researchers and to explore how their research helps us understand our world today. Today's guest is Gregor Kreitz, an associate professor with the Department of History. His research area focuses on war and society, with a regional focus on East Central Europe. He teaches courses on Europe under World War II occupation, terrorism, and 20th century genocides. He is currently working on a book on war, memory, and reconciliation in Kochiv, Slovenia, since 1941. Prior to coming to Brock, Gregor was an historian for the War Crimes and Crimes Against Humanity section of the Canadian Department of Justice. So just before we get started, given these topics, I'd like to warn our listeners that our conversation today might get a little bit heavy. Welcome, Gregor. Welcome. Thank you very much. All right, so you have a very interesting backstory. As I just mentioned, you uh, did some some government-related work before you uh, got into into being a professor. Um, So I'm I'm curious how you came to be in academia and why this particular area of the world that you wanted to focus on. Sure, great. Thank you. Um, So it it came out of a kind of family, uh, family history. So, um, uh, as my as my very difficult last name may suggest, uh, with no vowels and all <laughs> consonants, uh, my family comes from Slovenia, and um, so when I was I'd visit there. I have a huge family. I mean, we're talking. Um, uh, my mom and dad were the only ones out of a family of nine and eight children, respectively, that came to Canada. So I have thirty nine first cousins and uncles, and it's, it's huge. And so when I visited Slovenia, you know, on vacation uh, to see family, they, you know, all my relatives would be talking about the war. And I was always like, which war are you referring to? And they're like, you know, World War II. And this is in the late 80s, early 90s. And I just thought to myself, and the way they, the way, well, the way they spoke about it, it was almost as if the war had just occurred. Mm-hmm. And, and what I ended up, um, while I was there, I started hearing about this group that my family, who tends to be probably from the right of the political spectrum in Slovenia. Uh, they, are, they are churchgoers, Catholic churchgoers, um, in a country that was um, primarily communist. They, they, they talked about the civil war that occurred during the, during, during the occupation of Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was occupied, and Slovenia was occupied by the Germans, the Italians, and the Hungarians. And um, they talked about these, this, this group called the Domobranci, or the Home Guard, and they really kind of talked about them in these kind of glowing terms. And so growing up, I just assumed that these were these kind of brave people who fought against the, the partisans who I, in my mind, were, I was associated, they were associating it with, with communists. They wanted to turn the country into a communist state. And then these Domobranci, these brave Domobranci stepped in there and they were protecting us. And of course, as I entered my undergrad and started doing more research, uh, I started to realize that uh, it was a bit more complicated than that, and that these home guard, these Domobranci, were actually individuals that had been armed, paid, led in many cases by the occupiers, by the Nazis, by the, uh, uh, after 1943. And so that's when I really, you know, got into this kind of personal kind of issue. I, I, I would kind of push back uh, on my later trips and, you know, they would, my relatives would get really upset about this. Oh, you know, I think you, you have this all wrong. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, these individuals were collaborating with, uh, with the occupiers. And, and I know it's a complicated story. And the, the partisans, while resisting, also wanted to uh, have a communist revolution. I understand that, too. But it's really hard to find a good side and a bad side in these kinds of um, situations. And so that was really my, my entryway into, into, into history and into this area. And my, eventually, my, my PhD was on this particular issue. And, um, and don't worry, I'm still getting a lot of blowback from my relatives uh, on my first <laughs> book on collaboration. Whenever I go there, they keep telling me, why do you have to write like that? I'm like, well, because, you know. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's really interesting to kind of have that, that family pressure almost, um, almost against what you're doing. Oh, yeah. 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 No, and it's pretty intense. I mean, we. We've, I mean, sometimes it, it comes into tears. Like it, this is not. There. Um, it, it's difficult too because again, as on, that, on my side of the family, you know, so my I have I have uncles who's, for example, whose whose parents or father, uh, you know, was shot after the war by the partisans, and his particular issue is because he was seen as a as a shirker for not serving in the partisan ranks or trying to run away run away from the partisan ranks, and. You know, when you're talking to somebody who lost their father and that, it's very difficult 
you know, to convince this person. And, and, it's, and it's not my job to convince them, but it's, it's very hard for, for a person like that to see any kind of humanity in the people who would do something like that to the parents. So, so this is, and this is it. And, and Slovenia did during the war, unfortunately, because of this civil war aspect of it, it did suffer quite a bit. So how do you, as a historian, and we, we sometimes like to have this popular image of the historian as very disengaged and very objective and looking at all the facts, and uh, how do you navigate studying history with also all of this very loaded personal connection and personal perspectives, um, you know, and knowing, knowing relatives who were involved in these things that you're, that you're researching? I mean, it's... It's hard, um, and I think with any historian, if, if it gets personal, uh, I mean, the personal is involved with, with all historians. I mean, this idea that somehow historians are these, like, a, can be these objective individuals that can somehow, you know, divorce the personal from what they're working on, I think is difficult. Uh, even in a topic that you may not be have a family issue with, uh, eventually, you just get personally involved in the topic. You, you know, uh, you want to see the goodness in people, and you want to condemn, um, you know, something that you see as wrong. So, for myself, I, as an historian, I just think, okay, well, where, where's the evidence? Okay, where are the documents? What, what, are, the, what are the documents reveal? Uh, now, we know that documents aren't also these um, documents are also produced by people, but if you can point to documents, if you can create a narrative that's kind of embedded in, not an opinion, but in, but in documentary evidence, in statistics, you put forward a narrative and uh, to, to the best of your abilities, and then it's, you know, it's up for, for, for the person reading it to, to, to accept this or not. I mean, I, I, that's as far as you can go. And then, of course, if you come across uh, differing views that are also backed up by evidence, then you, of course, go back into your, into your research, you go back into your writing, and you, and you correct that. And, and, you know, you never reach, that's the great thing about history, you never reach this ultimate truth. It's impossible uh, because, you know, history is seen through the eyes of, of all these actors. But it's this kind of working toward this truer story, which I think really uh, makes history kind of interesting because it's a never-ending kind of process. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that, like, even in the 80s, they talked as though World War II had just happened. Um, so that's that's kind of interesting that it's so fresh or recent in the cultural memories. Uh, was that fairly common amongst, like, their friends and their colleagues to, to, to think about the war um, as something so recent? And why? Later in the 90s, of course, that began to change because then we had a new war in Yugoslavia, right? Yeah. So, uh, which didn't really affect Slovenia that much, but certainly in Croatia, Bosnia, uh, Serbia, f- further south, and Yugosla- in the former Yugoslav lands. Um, but it, it was pretty common. And the reason why it's common, at least partially, is because the era that, that I was there, which was like the last few years of Yugoslavia before Slovenia became independent, and then I was there while Slovenia became independent, I was kind of going through high school that time. You know, again, for this side of my family, which had people who were lost in, these, in, this, in this fighting or after the war, because after the war, of course, the partisans committed, you know, mass killings. I mean, the, the numbers are still being uncovered right now. But in Slovenia, for example, the final estimates or the latest estimates by the uh, government commission on concealed graves estimates uh, close to 700 grave sites, mass grave sites, and the numbers uh, could be anywhere between 80 to 100,000 who were killed in the weeks after World War II by the partisans who are now the new government against their uh, former opponents. And because of that, in the late 80s, there was no commemoration of that side, the side that fought against the partisans. And so when I'm driving through, literally driving through these villages and these communities, I would have, you know, like an uncle say, uh, oh, by the way, that's where so-and-so was executed, or that's when that happened. And so I think that was part of it as well, is this fact that there was no memorialization of these people. So in a sense, these people had to keep these memories alive uh, through geographic cues because there was no monument there. There was tons of monuments to the partisans all over the country. I mean, it's, you know, it was everywhere you, ever you went. There's, but, but there wasn't to that side. Now that's changed since the end of, uh, since the independence of Slovenia. Although even that is controversial because of this connection with the Nazis. Uh, it's very regional in the way they remember it. But I think that's more than anything why is that people just kept alive through family stories because their histories were not official history. They were mm. things that people just forgot about. 
So then having memorials and commemorations then are part of, I don't really want to use the word closure, but part of moving on from a conflict. They are. Although making the monuments themselves is such a, they just built one in Ljubljana um, and the wording on this is so dicey because, so do you, do you put a monument up to, to all the partisans who died in the struggle to liberate the country from the occupiers? And on the same monument, do you put on the individuals that were fighting against the partisans? Uh, paid for by the occupiers, and who were then, in many cases, executed by members of the partisan ruling elite. So what often happens is, is the wording itself is really questionable. And so generally, the political, because this is a political issue, the political solution is often to keep it as vague as possible. So the wording will be, for all of those who perished in conflict, mm. right? And, but then the flip side of that is that people are like, well, I don't see myself in there. How come you do not specifically mention this unit or that faction? It's because it's very difficult to do so. So you just have to, in a sense, the solution is to make it as vague as possible. Uh, and hope that people see themselves in these things. Mm. Uh, and even the mimes themselves are just, you know, they're very abstract. There's no, there's, there's not an image of a, of, a, of a soldier or something like that. It's, 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 you know, often just kind of these obelisks. So, so, so that is, that's, yeah, so that's, yeah. Are there, um, are there examples where that, where commemorations have been done well and have been able to kind of bring people together or are they just naturally divisive? Well, I mean, I, I, th- I, think, I think they are. And in a situation of a civil war, I, I do think this idea of reconciliation in the monument, first of all, is difficult because, first of all, I mean, what does reconciliation even mean, right? How do you bring two sides together? Uh, you know, you say sorry. You know, um, you know, who's saying sorry? People who were around after the fact. So why are they saying sorry for things that they didn't commit? So, so, so the political soriness or political apologies are kind of ring hollow. So in a sense, time is what's required for this to kind of move on in the sense that people just eventually kind of forget about it or they forget about the, or the pain lessons because you're so far removed from it. And so I think, you know, for all monuments, first of all, monuments have a, have a time to them, right? I mean, they're, they're significant for a while, then people ignore them. I and mean, there's, you know, we walk by monuments every day. We don't even know they're even there because they're not relevant to us. So I think in the moment when these things are being created, yes, it's very difficult to, to, to think that, you know, you could ever draw these two sides together. On the other hand, you know, give it 10, 15, 20 years, and then people will have to actually check, what's this monument about, about up again? And, um, you know, I kind of think to myself, like, nobody really gets upset about the Napoleonic Wars anymore. It's not like people are like, oh, you know, darn it, that Napoleon, look what he did to my family. I mean, I, I, I imagine so. That's not the case. Although if you ask the same question, you know, in the 1820s and the 30s, and the entire 19th century was operating in the shadow of Napoleon. Yes. So, so it's time, you know, generations pass, uh, and eventually this comes relegated to, to history, becomes less painful, personally painful. Uh, and I think ultimately that's, to a certain extent, that's, that's the best way we can do it. Because then we can at least discuss this in a way, in an historical sense, without getting these kind of personal recriminations constantly, mm-hmm. you know, being an obstacle to even discussing the historical issues behind these things. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, I mean, we're recording this a week after Remembrance Day. Yes. And I'm just thinking in terms of Remembrance Day and we're commemorating primarily World War One and World War Two, which mm-hmm. is over 100 years ago um, in terms of the World War One, that um, it probably strikes us quite differently than it would have even in the first 25, 50 years oh, yeah. um, after the conflict. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. So I'm really interested in hearing about your work with the War Crimes and Crimes Against Humanities section of the Canadian Department of Justice and kind of how you wound up there and how history did, your study of history uh, did or didn't prepare you um, for work that sounds pretty intense. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, you know, like all, a lot of jobs, I, I, needed, I needed to work. So I just finished my PhD. So, And it just so happened that one of the... PhD candidate who my supervisor had supervised several years before was moving out of the position, in fact, was moving on to um, other departments of the Canadian security establishment. So uh, I was kind of asked, are you, are you interested in this? So I thought, oh, it sounds like interesting. And um, it, it was, it was, it was 
interesting and also incredibly frustrating at the same time. And so the war crimes, the Crimes Against Humanity branch, um, comes out of legislation that was passed in, uh, in Canada that essentially makes war crimes, crimes against humanity, the, the genocide, it makes these crimes, crimes irrespective of where they occur. You know, so jurisdiction often matters, right? So if, you know, if I steal something in America, they're not going to put me on, on trial in Canada. I mean, they could, they could, you know, they can deport me to, Canada, to America or they can, or they can uh, transfer me there. But, and, and so that's where it really started. And as a historian, my job really, I mean, I, I was with the Department of Justice, but we worked with the RCMP. We worked with Canadian Border Services Agencies, Canada Immigration. And really the goal was to uh, investigate tips that were coming in from the public on potential war criminals who were living in Canada uh, from the wars in Yugoslavia. Uh, So we had different sections there. We had a section that was based on crimes, uh, for example, in Rwanda, uh, in the genocide, which was, again, I got this job in um, 2007, so, you know, still fairly, fairly recent. And I was working on the, on the crimes in, Yuga, in Yugoslavia. There's another section that was dealing with World War II cases, although they, of course, were beginning to dry up just because of the age of many of these mm-hmm. cases. And my job really was to, as these first um, uh, tips would come in, and often to be tips just like people walking down the street saying, we'll see somebody that had, you know, had, that they percent claim had beaten them in Bosnia. And so a tip goes to the RCMP and then a name comes up. And then my job really was to look into this. Who, who, who is this person? Do we know who this person is? Or do we know the unit or the, you know, the, the tip might include the, the military unit they were part of? So then my job as a historian was to kind of do the kind of background reading, find out as much as I can in the available literature on these units, where were they operating? And then, uh, and then it would proceed further. Like if there was, if there was enough to it, and of course the RCMP would pick this up. Um, so the RCMP was able to, in, in, like investigate and actually interview people. That wasn't my job. I mean, I wasn't fly. <laughs> but uh, I was able to, which was really a fascinating side of it, I was able to go to The Hague, where, of course, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia was, was being held. And they had, it's, it's kind of like an, almost like a, kind of, in some ways, a repeat of Nuremberg, the Nuremberg trials, in the sense that they had this massive archive that they had, that they had established. And this was from NATO acquiring, essentially, documents. Uh, some documents were, were, were donated, some through criminal trials. But it's basically a repository of all these documents that had used for other cases, like the case against Milosevic, against other suspected uh, uh, war criminals. And uh, I was able to, f- to go there and actually look through their documentations uh, for these particular people, then if we got more information on these documents, we could then bring them back to Canada and use them, again, simply for these trials uh, or for a, a developing case, for a developing case. And the frustration really comes out of the fact that not a lot of, not a lot of cases went, uh, or there's only really one case that I can recall that went the criminal route. It was a case of a, of a Rwandan genocidaire who eventually was found guilty but it was, it was difficult. I mean, it's difficult because I'm an historian right? and, and you see the legal system working. The legal system works in a, different, in a different way, you know? I mean, just because I have a sense that there was this unit and this unit was involved in war crime, that's, that's not good enough, obviously, for a... So you need, you need eyewitnesses, you need, uh, you know, you need testimony. And so, so it, was, it was an interesting um, mixture of history, kind of working with the legal system. But the legal system doesn't have a lot of use with history, or at least history that that many judges would see as being somewhat irrelevant. Mm. It it's really comes down to what did this individual do, right? Mm-hmm. We don't care about their ethnicity as a whole or what their ethnicity as a whole suffered. We want to know what this individual did. And um, so it, it, it came rather, yeah, it, it kind of bogged down. Eventually, a lot of the cases just went the route of, uh, let's just deport the people because if they had lied on their application to come to Canada where there's questions that relate to were you part of any armed units and they said no, then that you're basically, this is fraud. You're basically coming into Canada on a fraudulent basis. And then we would deport them. You could deport them back. Now, the question is, of course, would the country that are receiving them actually pursue anything against them? That's the other issue. And uh, so, but um, yeah. Yeah, so would these be cases that would be pursued in Canada, or would Canada take or refer these to the Hague? 
so, so they wouldn't refer anything to the hey, these were these were trials that would be taking place in 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 Canada, okay. uh, or these, these would be cases that would be pursued in Canada on a kind of a criminal track. Okay. Um, but again, the the evidentiary level to hit for these cases is quite high. And any prosecutor would have to be pretty confident that this has some root of success, right? So then the question is, you know, and, and a lot of the witnesses, of course, were not in Canada. They'd be mm-hmm. uh, in, in the former Yugoslav lands. So the question is, like, do, do we go? And, and they were. They were. The RCMP would go there on, on trips to interview uh, potential eyewitnesses. And, of course, when we gather all this information together, then it's, it's a, a decision then the, to, to the Department of Justice, see, you know, is this... Do we have legs for a case here, right? So this was Canada basically trying to live up to its kind of international obligations. But in the end, there, there wasn't a, a lot of cases moving forward, in the, in the, at least in the criminal, through the criminal route. Uh, as I said, they usually went through different routes. Often the immigration uh, route uh, was the other way that they would, would take. But, but I think it is important because I think, you know, I mean, on one level, I mean, Canada is, you know, is it responsible that if these kinds of horrendous crimes occur in the world that... And if the individual that's perpetrated them are in Canada, it's, you know, we don't give them a free pass. It's, um, you know, they need to be held accountable for these crimes. So war crimes have been in the news um, on and off recently. And um, I think you and I first spoke on uh, the morning of February 24th, I believe it was, um, literally hours after Russia had invaded Ukraine, although we didn't know that that was going to happen that particular morning. And obviously that that situation has continued on and continued to develop. And we are hearing reports about um, investigations into war crimes um, that have happened there. So I have so many questions that so many different angles that we can talk about this. Um, I'm just kind of curious in what you're hearing about about war crimes um, coming out of Ukraine and what your thoughts are. Yeah, and, um, you know, I, I mean, I've been following just the kind of general media on this. And uh, so, I mean, yes, I mean, they have a kind of robust investigative uh, teams there. They're being assisted by the international organizations, uh, by some of the Ukraine's Western allies who have, you know, you know expertise in this. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll see how this, this uh, develops. But these are, again, these are cases that take a, a long time to develop. And now, obviously, the U- Ukrainian government itself can, can certainly try some of these cases in Ukraine. You know, on, on the question of, you know, uh, any, any officials ending up in, in The Hague or in the International Criminal Court, I mean, I think we're, we're still years away from, from that, right? And, and then the issue, of course, still is, like, how do you even... I mean, it'd be one thing if, if Ukraine has custody of, of, his, of these individuals, but if they don't, I mean... How do you gain custody? I mean, you think about the Yugoslav war crimes cases. I mean, a lot of the leading suspects, I mean, we're talking 20, 25 years after, and they're, they're finally being kind of brought to justice or caught. So it, it's a very long process. So um, so it's it's going on. And uh, but, but again, yeah, of course. I mean, these, we have these, you know, the things we saw in Bucha, these horrific acts, right? I mean, um, someone needs to be held accountable for that. And, and it only, you know... All of these kinds of rules of war, I mean, they only work, there's no international policemen here. I mean, you have the International Criminal Court, but it's relying upon nation states. And if nations don't live up to the rules that they themselves have agreed to in the various conventions that they've signed, the Genocide Convention, the the Hague Convention, the Geneva Conventions, if they don't live up to it, then it's just, it's a piece of paper. Mm. And so in, in that respect, I think it's really important that the countries d- do pursue this uh, because it's only if the countries are all trying to live up to their agreements that, that this ha- actually has any kind of force or effect. Mm-hmm. And I'll put a link in our show footnotes to some of the Brock News coverage that uh, you did with me. And I'm curious here how understanding history of Eastern Europe and Russia can help us understand why this conflict has unfolded maybe the way it has or why this conflict exists um, to some degree in the first place, although I think there has been certainly some some coverage of that. But Yeah, no, I, I, mean, I think what history hopefully should do is allow us to see through the eyes of other people. And, and, and in this sense, I mean, 
living here in Canada, I think we can understand uh, the Ukrainian position. I mean, I think this is why it kind of is rallied the world around, because it seems like such a clear violation of the, of the international order that this sovereign country is suddenly invaded by its massive neighbor. And, and I think this is why it, it's one of those kind of conflicts where there seems to be very clearly a good guy and a bad guy. But I, I also think history helps us understand the Russian perspective as well. And I think that's important because ultimately there's going to have to be some kinds of discussions with the Russians. And so understanding, you know, the, why is it there more resistance in Russia to what's happening or what its regime is doing? And I think if, if you start understanding a longer kind of history of Russia as a, as a place that always saw itself as being somewhat distinct from the West... You know, there's a strain in Russian history which is very open to the West, uh, and you see you see bursts of this in its history, and, and yet there's also this kind of more kind of traditional kind of approach in which Russia is a unique kind of Eastern Orthodox society distinct from the West, and the fact that Putin is actually kind of shifting the conflict now is not just a war against the neo-Nazis in Ukraine because that didn't do didn't go very well. I think he's starting to shift it into a war against perhaps still neo-Nazis in Ukraine, but they're actually, it's a war against the entire West. It's a war against NATO. It's a war against, and that's something that I think uh, some Russians can certainly kind of rally around. So and I think history, at least listening to Russian his, historians of Russia, allows us to kind of understand this other side, not, not to justify what they're doing, certainly no, but it's at least to understand why these why, why a regime would be willing to take what we see as this kind of illegal step, these kind of monstrous war against a, a sovereign state, where, where is this coming from? It's coming out of power dynamics? Certainly it is. But you still have to have, even in a repressive society like Russia, you still need to have sufficient popular support or at least, at least have enough people who just don't care enough to allow this to, to continue. Uh, so there's clearly a kind of a cost-benefit analysis that went on here. I mean, there's a whole story about, you know, Putin being isolated during the pandemic and what was he thinking? But, you know, Russian interest in these areas is, is Russian history. I mean, it was part of Russia. It was part of the, was part of the Russian Empire until World War I. It was part of the Soviet Union. Uh, so there's, these, these peoples have been connected um, through the kind of the, the nucleus of Russian imperial control for, you know, for, for quite a long time. So... Um, so I think history allows us to kind of see this in, in a kind of a broader perspective. And hopefully when, if there are some discussions, at least the diplomats are, 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 aware, of, are aware of these sorts of challenges and these, these perspectives. Yeah, so I'd, I'd like to dig a little bit more into that, into that history. So my understanding from our previous conversation is kind of Ukraine's kind of caught in between NATO and the West and Russia. And um, I think you explained to me once before about how how Russia sees that as encroachment. Yes, and, and that has been an argument given by by many scholars who who you know will will point back to the fact that since the breakup of the Soviet Union, the eastward march of of NATO's borders, uh, its expansion into Eastern Europe threatened Russia. Now, there's a whole other kind of scholarly field, uh, school who says that that's, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, uh, that it's, it's never really been about NATO. It's been more about Vladimir Putin trying to uh, win domestic popularity by what he assumed would be a cakewalk through Ukraine and this regime would just fall because, you know, previous Russian interventions in other places in the Caucasus and other areas were quite successful or, in, or even in Syria. And these were just wins, wins, wins for, for Putin. So, so there is there is that that side to it, and um, and I, again, I think we we need to be cautious of simply saying, well, the West is to blame here. That you know, Russia is simply acting out of self defense because then essentially we're we're buying right into Russia's uh, you know propaganda that it's that's nothing. It's, it's simply just Russia defending itself. Ukraine was not a member of NATO. Ukraine uh, was not going to get NATO membership any time in the near future, precisely because of what just occurred here. On the other hand, I think it's actually perhaps strengthened those in the, in the West who believe that, if anything, NATO needs to be stronger and, and more robust in its response. Because if you don't, you know, Russia will take advantage of these, of these weak links. That's, that was a, the difficult position that Ukraine found itself in. It, it, it had, uh, you know, words of encouragement, but it was on its own. 
and and uh, you know Russia in some sense called its bluff. It wasn't attacking Ukraine was not going to bring in NATO intervention, and that's still the reality here. And the nuclear issue, which we've talked about before, is you know Russia is is a nuclear armed state. Uh, so there's that that makes Ukraine a separate case, and it's. But I also think it just kind of underscores. And I think this is important to uh, to kind of underline as. For myself, as an historian of these peoples, the smaller peoples that live between kind of like the German world and the Russian world, uh, Poles, Slovenes, Slovaks, Czechs, Hungarians, the, the, the various Balkan populations, is that the reason why these people were joining NATO is not because NATO was, in for, was forcing themselves onto Poland. It's because Poland realized from its own history that it needed support, that it needed military support because, I mean, Polish history is a history of occupation from foreign states. And, and, and of course, uh, the communization of Poland after World War II was, was an example of that. So these, these countries actually wanted to join NATO. It's part of their security. And so my problem with the arguments that some schools say, which is, uh, oh, the Americans were isolating the Russians, it's like, but do the people between the Russians and uh, the West matter? I mean, are these states not allowed to make decisions to safeguard their own independence? And why should we just assume, therefore, that uh, an attack upon a sovereign state is somehow a kind of logical kind of response to feeling under siege? It's, it's not. And, you know, sovereignty, as, as, as defined the UN, applies to the smallest country and applies to the largest country. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a ranking order of, of sovereignty. It's sovereignty is supposed to be respected whether you're an island nation or whether you're, you know, you're, you're Russia or you're America. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know in practice, of course, that often um, it does not, you know, we don't follow that rule. But it's precisely why my sympathies are for these, uh, these, these smaller states in between these behemoths who, who try to kind of protect their sovereignty. And, and what Ukraine is doing right now is, is, is simply that. It's defending its sovereignty. And you can see that in the motivations of its troops it's, and it's in a society. Because what's the alternative to live mm-hmm. under the dictates of a, of a foreign state that has no concern about your own democratic and your own democratic choice for who you want to lead your state. So, Yeah. Have, have there been things about this uh, this conflict that have surprised you? I mean, uh, what I think has surprised everyone is just how... I mean, aside it, from the conflict yeah, itself, no, which but just, did... But just how, yeah. inept, uh, how inept the Russians have, have been, you know. I mean, I remember, you know, opening the pages of the newspapers the days after this occurred, and they, you know, they would have these, like, listings of... And they would list the number of tanks, the number of armored personnel carriers, the number of aircraft, number... And you're just like, wow, Ukraine is really in trouble here. And it goes to show, first of all, how shambolic this entire operation was. The fact that they were even, the Russians were given three days rations because they thought this was going to be over in three days. And it just didn't turn out that way. And I think the motivation that Ukrainians are showing, it's, it's something that I, I, that I, again, that I'm familiar with from my own kind of research on World War II occupations, where people we're willing to go to these extraordinary levels of sacrifice, a sacrifice that you would think that people would be unable to even bear because they believe there's a principle at stake. And I, and I think that's probably the most, in, in some ways, the most kind of like encouraging and kind of, I, I wish it didn't have to be people dying for this. I mean, I wish, to, you know, we could express these principles in other ways. But it goes to show that, you know, there's motivation and strength there. But the, yeah, the Russians, I mean... Um, I, I, Yep, they keep getting pushed back, and I think part of it is because there's really this kind of, there's, there's not much of a, an interest there. It's really, I don't think the Russian population truly understands what's happening, or if they do understand, they simply don't want to be bothered enough. And the fact that Russian mobilized troops were, or, or people who have been called up for mobilization were, were fleeing the countries is an indication of what people think about this. And um, Yeah, I remember the media reports on that were basically like, good luck getting a train ticket, because... They were just being snapped up so quickly, people just trying to get out of Yeah. And um, of it. I mean, we're getting to a point, though, in this conflict where I, I think we're going to be hitting a, a spot where negotiations will have to take place. I mean, when you think about, for example, the Crimean Peninsula, and that was taken of Kherson, I mean, you know, the road to Crimea is kind of mapped out now. I mean, there's, there's other, obviously, huge logistical issues. You have to cross the, the river. You have to... Um, this is certainly not going to be easy. But then the question that has to be raised, though, is, you know, what do we do with Crimea? Um, I mean, is Crimea distinct from from February uh, 2022? I mean, it, Crimea came under Russian control in 2014. Obviously, 
once again, Russia kind of imposed itself on Crimea. But people have to ask themselves, I mean, what, what, do, what do Crimeans want? I mean, obviously they had a referendum, which was a, a joke referendum. But this area did have a kind of a distinctively kind of pro-Russian or, or had a certainly a, a larger portion of its population that saw itself as being part of the Russian world. And so I think we would get into problems if the Ukrainian military now is attacking uh, or trying to liberate peoples that may not want to be liberated. And so, so, so this is where it gets uh, dicey. Obviously, the, you know, the best solution to this, I mean, would be a plebiscite of some sort where, where the people would have international observers who could actually somehow try to guarantee uh, a relatively free uh, an impartial uh, kind of referendum on some of these areas. Perhaps that would be the you know, redo of what the Russians did. But I, I don't know. I mean, Zelensky's point of trying to liberate every last inch of, of Ukraine, is it militarily possible? I don't, I don't know. And, and mm. you know, uh, just I mean, even the, the Russian retreat from Kherson seems to have been far more organized uh, than what we saw, for example, around Kharkiv, when, where, where there was this kind of mass collapse of Russian troops. I mean, they managed to get almost all the Russian personnel across the river. And so at least that's the reports coming out right now, that there's very few left. So it was a fairly orderly retreat, which seems to suggest that the Russian military leaders are somewhat more competent and that's not necessarily good news for, for Ukraine. And so I, I wonder, and this is why you hear this kind of chatter in the background about negotiation, negotiations, something eventually will have to break, but I'm not sure if we're at that point quite yet. Mm, so, Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, it is a, it's a story I think that's going to be with us for a while yet, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, we can revisit it. Um, hopefully at some point we can have a conversation about the commemoration after, yes. after it's over, but yes. uh, certainly... Um, very complex. Um, I wanted to move on and ask you a little bit about your upcoming book because you're dealing your upcoming book, and you've told me how to pronounce this, and I've already forgotten. Kochoya. Kochoya, yeah, um, in <laughs> Slovenia, and it looks at war, memory, and reconciliation. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the place, sure. um, as well as your book and and your research project there. Well, the problem with this, this book, too, is, you know, it's, it's always like, this, this will be kind of, I guess, my third book. If I, my second book is more kind of a co, co-authored work. The first book, of course, you really need it as an academic. You're like, okay, I got this written. It's part of, you know, you want to you get your tenure. You have to work hard to get this. So this one, the, the time constraints are a little bit off. And the problem is I keep, I keep finding these fascinating kind of side stories, which, which take me in directions that, just further and further away from my original research. But, story of research. <laughs> yeah, story of research. But, um, but this, this region is actually quite interesting. It's kind of in the southwestern part of Slovenia. It's this kind of forested area. Now it's quite forested, but 90% of the area is forested. But it used to be the home, actually, of this 600-year-old German-speaking population that was uh, moved into the area in order to uh, take advantage of the forests. Uh, and they, they came from various places in what is today Austria and Germany. And they spoke this dialect that, you know, it's called Gocher in German, so Gocheers and Gocheers, which is, you know, it's not, um, uh, it's, it, the language itself is going to die, it's going to eventually die away, but it's, uh, it's very distinct from, from German. And what happened during World War II, and this is why I find this such a fascinating area, is that this German population is eventually moved out of the area because the area came first under the Italians during the occupation. And Hitler promised these, these ethnic Kocheveris or the ethnic Kocher Germans to gather them into the German Reich. So something like 92, 93% of this population opted for resettlement. They left their villages that they had inhabited for hundreds of years. The Nazi plan to move them to Germany proper never materialized. In fact, they were only moved about a good 50 or 60 kilometers away into German-occupied Slovenia. And the Germans had then ethnically cleansed about 60,000 Slovenians from their homes and then put these Germans into their homes. So, um, so right off the bat, you know that once liberation happens, these people are not, for uh, their persona non grata, they were actually expelled from the country and they suffered horribly at these last uh, few weeks and months of the war. But because of that, it left their, left their villages empty. So... 
And the partisan resistance in Slovenia had its headquarters in the exact same region that had just been been basically abandoned by these German villagers. So the you know in these woods you had one of the only still preserved uh, headquarters of a resistance movement. It had printing presses, everything, and they never discovered it. So that that existed there. Uh, they had you know they had doctors, they had British airmen, Canadians even going through here, uh, and then. After the war, the execution of these Domobranci, these, these opponents of the regime, took place in that same region, again, in these various kind of limestone caverns. So that's why I found this so fascinating. We have kind of like this kind of German kind of uh, ethnic group that's removed, so the movement of peoples. We have, we have resistance, we have collaboration. And what's really interesting is that the landscape plays such a large role in this, right? It's... Um, that's going to be my next question, was, was bringing, bringing the landscape into it. You've already mentioned caves and forests. Yeah, you know, because the thing about a resistance is, like, well, how does a resistance survive? I mean, you know, in an urban area, it's very difficult, right? I mean, it's, um, you know, you can have safe houses. But to have an armed resistance, you need a place to run to. So, 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 the, so the, the countryside, or the, the, the forest and the terrain and these small abandoned villages certainly helped. So the, the fascinating thing for me is also just, like, food. Like, how, how do you... Like, you know, you go hiking in the woods here in, like, you know, in Niagara region. And if someone said, okay, listen, I'm just going to leave you here. Good luck, you know. What do you do? Well, I need food. So where would you go for food? I mean, you can try to hunt something in the woods. Good luck. Or you look down and you say, aha, oh, there's a little village. There's a little town. There's a, there's a, there's a department store. There's a, there's a grocery store. And that's what they did. So they, you know, so a lot of the dynamics of collaboration uh, comes out of the fact that these partisan units in these woods need food. So they end up raiding or, or asking for voluntary donations. And of course, in the wartime, people are- Semi-voluntary. Semi-voluntary. <laughs> and so they end up like having their kind of food stores confiscated. And that causes, you know, resistance from the local population. If the Germans ever came around or the Germans kind of uh, local collaborators and found out, well, where's your food stores? Oh, well, the, you know, the Parzans took it. You know, they took it. I mean, did they take it or did you give it to them? You know, so these local populations, these civilian populations are kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place. So, so I found that really, really interesting. But then just following this area into the post-war era, it's just such a fascinating story because I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to trace, so first of all, where did these ethnic Germans go? And a lot of them ended up in like uh, Brooklyn and Queens where they had pre-existing kind of uh, these German populations. And they, they still have these, uh, they still have like a local kind of association. And but the unfortunate thing is this whole entire rich culture, this kind of, of this, of this German population that, that made a living and otherwise, you know, it's, it's all kind of limestone-y kind of landscape. So it's not really the most productive lands. It's, uh, but they, you know, they mixed it with like using the forest to, to carve, like they were famous for wandering around the Balkans or, or Central Europe selling wooden products, wooden spoons, wooden bowls. Um, they even hunted things that are, they're called pochens, but essentially they're like uh, dormice with bushy tails, and they would they would supplement their their diet on this. It's just a really fascinating world. But once these people are removed, right? Even though we might see, as an immigration official might say, "Oh, they're Germans," but no, no, they're a distinct people. And once they're removed from their land, it's the end of their existence, really. They and start to lose that distinction. You start to lose that distinction. Then uh, you have the language, you have the memories left, but you don't have that connection to the land. So I find that, so that's part of the story. And the part of the story is, of course, uh, these graves, of course, that are not talked about, these mass graves that are not talked about until literally until the independence of Slovenia and the commemoration of these areas. That's another fascinating kind of aspect of it. But just the fact that this, the area became increasingly more and more forested. So now this whole region is celebrated as it's one of the wildest places in Europe. And it's true. They have bears, they have wolves, they have lynx. It's, you know, for Europe where, you know, there's so much population pressure, it's amazing to have this. The regime after the war also used it to advantage. They actually shut about a third of the area off and they ended up building these secret bunkers underground. They had movies, they had a, a movie theater, they had kitchens, and it was for the reg- it was for the elite of the Communist Party. If there was a war, they would be taken into these tunnels underground. Uh, there was, it was proof against a, any kind of nuclear war or any kind of attack. And so the whole, the whole region is just such a, such a fascinating area. And, um, 
So, so that's, that's hopefully, it's a kind of like a microcosm in the sense of kind of a lot of the tensions that we see during World War II, but also how we kind of try to get over this and the, the long-term kind of consequences of these, of these wars. We think the war ends in 45, but of course it doesn't. I mean, it, it continues, it's, it reverberates through the, through the decades. Mm-hmm. So, so is your book then kind of a, a general history? It's a general history. Okay. It's a general history, but it's also it's a it's a general history that focuses on on the territory. And you know, as, as historians, we often we you know we talk about history. History is you know the history. We often the history of people is where we've kind of taken it. So it's, a, it's uh, you know what did this person do? But I, I'm really trying to link the people's choices to the landscape. That the landscape kind of limits what you can and cannot do. And that's, I think you see that with this German population that lived there. I think you see that with the limitations of the resistance because the, the fact they couldn't get enough you know, food from these, from this, from this, from this, pop, from this, from this landscape, uh, forced them to, you know, raid for for food stocks. So, in a sense, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a, it's an environmental kind of history intertwined with these, with these, with these human stories. Because I think you can't you can't separate the two. And the more I, the more I think about it, the more I start to realize that. Um, the, the the landscape is not just something where the human drama takes place against. It's actually one of the kind of key factors that 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 actually directs human the human drama, right? And so, um, anyways, that's that's a long term that's a long term plan. So it's it's coming along. It's various kind of chapters or conference papers that I've done here and there. And uh, I just need to kind of bring it all together still, so. Yeah. Well, speaking of conference papers, you um, were just recently um, presenting at a conference about hunting. So I guess hunting hunting kind of brings in hunting and the communism uh, part, the Communist Party of Yugoslavia. That's kind of interesting. And that, I guess, pulls in the landscape as well, then. It does. So again, the the, the same, it's not just this region. I was looking at other parts of Slovenia. Eventually, I want to expand it to other parts of Yugoslavia. But, um, you know, hunting, I just thought was such a, you know, you think about hunting and you think about, I don't know, you might think about dukes and barons and lords going on these elaborate hunting trips. They'll have hounds with them. They'll have this whole coterie of people assessing them. And then what are communists doing? And I actually had, I had images at the conference where you have the king of Yugoslavia dressed in his finest outdoor hunting gear uh, with like a red deer uh, had shot below him. And then, you know, fast forward 40 years and you have Josip Broz Tito, the leader of Yugoslavia, dressed in almost identical clothes, you know, uh, with his, you know, uh, you know, with his, his trophy bear or his trophy deer. And um, so, you know, why would you kind of, in a sense, mimic the most reactionary class that communism was supposed to have done away with, right? And so the more I looked into it, it was really fascinating how, um, uh, you know, hunting was very difficult to do. It was very, uh, all game in the country became common social possession, which is a very kind of communist way of saying it. The problem is only certain people were able to take this common social possession in terms of shooting, in terms of hunting. And that was often the communist elite or wealthy dignitaries or, or ambassadors to Yugoslavia. They were taking on these hunts and they're, they're quite expensive. I mean, in some ways, you know, the, the Yugoslav communist regime would say, well, we're protecting the natural landscape for, for these species and for all of Yugoslavs, which in some ways was true. And the numbers of these species increased, but it was also uh, kind of a pastime that was only enjoyed by a, a certain select group. And it's, it's amazing, like Tito would be able to hunt bear and only a handful of bear were actually able to be shot per year. Um, and then the lower down you were on the rank of the Communist Party, you know, you know, your common local communist officials, you know, might be able to shoot rabbit or, you know, pheasants or uh, pigeons. Um, so it kind of, so small game was for kind of local regional commerce officials, the, these, these mountain goats or these um, chamois, kind of like a, it's like an antelope, kind of a descendant of an antelope uh, lives in the Alps. Um, that was reserved for for the for the bigwigs, so I found that really fascinating. That is that that is quite fascinating. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And the other kind of really interesting point about this too is that um, is where they hunted. So a lot of these hunting estates had belonged to wealthy individuals, uh, often Germans who had acquired this from the, ha- the old Habsburg days. Now these castles were all nationalized right after the war. The, I think the, the most perhaps the most. Ast- 
disturbing case is this castle called Sturmul Castle and its hunting estate. And this is a, a castle about 25 kilometers north of Ljubljana, the capital city. And it was bought in the 1930s in uh, interwar Yugoslavia, so not communist Yugoslavia, in, in, under the kingdom of Yugoslavia, by this wealthy industrialist and his wife. And they, you know, they, they worked on this place. They made it really quite beautiful. They worked on the, the, the grounds around it. Uh, and then in 1944, the partisans broke into their castle um, and put them on, literally put them on trial in their castle, accusing them of treason to the Slovenian people uh, and executed them that same day. And their, and their bodies were only discovered in 2015. And in this castle then, which was nationalized after the war, you know, the same communist officials who were part of this movement that killed these owners of this place... And by the way, they were rehabilitated. These these two former owners were rehabilitated uh, by the courts in, in, in uh, fairly fairly recent. I don't have the exact date, um, but they would have these you know lavish lavish parties where they would come and they would, you know, uh, the common officials would have, go for a hunting day, have a nice dinner, and there's just something some very kind of disturbing about this. And I almost see it as kind of this projection of the regime's power that we can do this, that we've defeated this class of people. Uh, and now we are going to enjoy the privileges that they once did. So there's there's a lot psychologically going on mm-hmm. here. Uh, it's um, so um, I also want to ask you about your courses. Okay. You're no, you're not teaching anything on hunting. No, no <laughs> although that would be a really interesting <laughs> course. course. <laughs> um, but you you have a course on terrorism. You have yes. a course on 20th century genocide. You're working on a graduate course on the Holocaust. I'm kind of curious about the terrorism course, about kind of when and how that idea came about and and what, what you do with that class. Um, well, I mean, the terrorism class, uh, I'm trying to think how many years it's been... Uh, it's probably a good about five, four or five years now. Well, I mean, I, I suppose the, you know, I mean, until until the pandemic and until now the, the recent war in Ukraine, you know, I mean, terrorism was kind of a staple thing that we were covering in, in, in the media. And uh, and f- for my sense, I always found it interesting because terrorism is in some some ways can be a description of something that's occurring. Uh, it can also be in kind of an epithet that you use to kind of denounce your opponents by calling them terrorists. And so I really became interested in this, in this, con- this term and the, 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 the many ways a term is used. And, and, and in, some, in a sense, it's almost like kind of a phantom term. Yes, certain things can be terror, but it's, it's, a, it's a human construct. It's what we say is terrorism. And... So I, 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 I just wanted to, to get a better handle of this because we were so obsessed about the term and because we were fighting wars, international wars, which part of the impetus was to, to end terrorism in the world. And yet, you know, what do we know about terrorism? What do we know about the history of terrorism, the, ter- the, the history of the use of this term? So this, this course then started as a result of that. And, and so I really kind of followed terrorism through the ages, primarily focusing on kind of the early modern, modern era. But I think if, um, if we see, and the way I kind of define terrorism is, is terrorism is used as, as a, it's, it's, a, it's a theatrical use of violence. And I don't mean theatrical in a kind of, a, in a, what a great show, I mean, but literally using violence in a way that sends a message beyond the victims of the attacks, that it's trying to make a larger statement. Now, if you just take that view, you could see how terrorism could be for things that we clearly do not agree with. But it could also be used for things that people may agree with, blowing up uh, blowing up a dam because you want the rivers to flow. You know, mm-hmm. It's not just about the dam. It's making a larger statement that we need to... Uh, respect our natural environment. So, so that's that was really the kind of the impetus behind us to take a look at how terrorism has been used through the through the ages. As a term, it really kind of develops as a re- result of many things to do with the French Revolution. The, the term, the the, ter- the terror, but terror was seen as a virtuous undertaking in the French Revolution, as a way of cleansing the revolution of those who were not truly behind the revolution. And then it moves its way through like the anarchist movement, for example, in the late 19th, early 20th century, probably the first kind of uh, example of global terrorism because there was anarchists were operating all over Europe, all over uh, North America, Canada, the U.S. It also goes through the the decolonization struggles, right? What you know, the Mau Mau movement was in Kenya was seen as a terrorist movement, 
uh, of, you know, of, of Kenyans attacking these helpless uh, settlers in these areas. And yet from the from the Kenyan perspective, I mean, you know, a huge swath of the Kenyan population was was put through these screening camps to see their loyalty. I mean, this was this was a struggle for decolonization. It was a, but it was also it was this overreaction of the British state, and it just didn't seem to really matter. It seemed to be this seemed to be at least in the British perspective seemed to be something that was that was okay, that it was understandable to protect um, those handful of white settler farmers who seized their land through the colonial process. So, so we really kind of follow that. And then it brings us, of course, the last week deals more with um, kind of the most recent kind of um, examples of this. And hopefully by the time the students get to the course, they'll see that, um, yeah, it's a, a tricky concept. And you really have to be, like all things in history, you really have to be looking at it from, from many, many angles. And we have to realize when we use that word, and we use words like that, it's uh, they're never neutral. They're designed for often for, you know, specific kind of political kind of purposes often. So I'm kind of curious um, because just a couple of months ago we had September 11th, you know, well, it rolls around every year, um, but it has a significantly different meaning since 2001 than it did before. It was just a date on the calendar prior to that. Um, and I'm just curious, given your expertise on terrorism and on commemoration, um, what are your thoughts on how our conversations about um, what happened that day in uh, 2001, how, how, that's, how that's changed and how our commemoration of it has changed? I mean, at least as far as my students are concerned, it's amazing how, you know, I just, because I was in my I know, late 20s, I kind of assumed that everyone was around on September 11th. No, right? our students weren't. I know. <laughs> Many of our students I know. weren't. So they're, they're learning it. This is it, right? So for them, it's kind of yeah. odd. They, I mean, they know, they know that kind of really visceral kind of image, right, which is of these building, of these towers coming down and these people who just got up and went to work, you know, didn't come home. And so there's, but, but then there, of course, you have to... It's the unpacking of this, right? So where, where did this where did this come from? Where, who were those that were behind this? What was motivating them? And and then you know you start unpacking this kind of jihadist this jihadist movement, this international jihadist movement. You and you know for, for students to be able to understand this, say, well, but where, where where is this coming from? So we need to. This is a story of of imperialism in some in some respects. It's a story of corruption in, uh, in some of these states where some of the perpetrators came from uh, and, and many of these regimes being backed by, by the West. It's this frustration with modernity. There's so many elements at work here. And um, in a sense, the fact that we're further removed from it actually actually makes it easier, for, I, I think, for, to unpack this. Because once you... I, I remember in the days after 9-11... If anyone actually threw out the issue of, well, you know, we have to understand where America, America's power in the world, that there's, there's connections here. All you of wouldn't sudden, dare say you something wouldn't dare like say that. that. No. You wouldn't dare say that. No. And, and, and it, it is part of it. There's, there's a connection here. This is not just something that came out of the blue. And as much as some people would like to keep it that way, I think it's important to understand where it comes from. That doesn't justify that you kill innocent people. That's not, that's not the point. But the point is that terrorism is often used by individuals who do not have a conventional army behind them, who need to use these acts of, again, often spectacular violence. I don't mean spectacular in a positive sense, to bring attention to their point. It's, and so that's why I think this is uh, kind of an interesting thing to be, to be, to be examining. And so uh, certainly, yes, I think uh, it has changed because of, as a result of, of the time. I will also say that the conspiracy theories around the towers being brought down by the American government still are circling around there. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And I, I still have students, you know, come down. So you don't really think that... They, it's an inside job, right? And I'm like, oh gosh, here we go again. But you know, I mean, and that itself, I think, is just—it's so interesting because now we live in a world of conspiracies. We mm-hmm. just have an entire American election that's based on this conspiracy of a stolen election. And you know, when I first heard these conspiracies, I thought, okay, well. But it, I think, if anything, it was a kind of a harbinger of things to come. Um, this kind of all these kind of forces, circle forces coming together, this kind of distrust in government, this, the uh, availability of, of social media and to be able to kind of disseminate these kinds of views, uh, f- you know, frustrated, uh, often frustrated young men. It, you know, it's, it's an interesting and, and yet, you know, conspiracies, no, no offense to George W. But I don't really see him as, uh, you know, the, 
you know, the, the conspirator here. I mean, and, and it, just, it, it just flies in the face of logic. How, how, mm-hmm. how could a group keep this a secret? I mean, when, when we have journalists constantly probing and it defies logic, but it's, 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 I think it also satisfies, conspiracies satisfy certain kinds of, anyway, that's a whole other yeah. issue, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of conspiracies around World War II. Um, I don't know if you were in attendance earlier in November when um, Richard Evans, right. Richard, Sir Richard J. Evans mm-hmm. um, came to Brock and spoke, spoke about World War II and uh, the conspiracies that are still circulating yeah. that. So that I guess that makes what we do in history that much more important. It is. And, and I, mean, I think about conspiracies, I mean, you can, you can lay out the facts, but if, if you are in this kind of bubble where nothing matters, then the, then the question is, is, ultimately, are you as an historian part of this conspiracy? Mm. Because if you're simply pointing to the news, to the media, if you're pointing to you know, well-known works on this topic, people who believe in conspiracies will say, well, yeah, but this is all part of that same conspiracy. I mean, it's, 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 it's an amazing, and in some ways, comforting kind of world where there's always an answer for something because... Mm. Um, so that's often the, the difficulty with these things, I think, as well. Yeah. Well, and I suppose part of it is is teaching those critical skills and the critical analysis before people get to that it does. point oh, where sure. they don't want to hear it. Oh, exactly, exactly. I mean, as historians, that's what we do. Like, who wrote this? Who wrote this document? When was this document written? Why was this document written? What do we know about this individual? You just try to keep probing into this and seeing what we can what we can decipher from this. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And speaking of conspiracies, of course, um, you know, there is still today conspiracies around the Holocaust. And you're doing a course on Holocaust. So yeah, I have so two courses. So the one course is a, a graduate course on 20th century genocides. Okay. I mean, uh, 20th. I mean, just kind of a random date, but it's uh, modern genocides. Uh, and it, so in the graduate program in history, it's quite... Um, we, we, we take uh, theme-based topics. So it's not, it's not a chronologically taught course. It's, it's what is it that makes genocide genocide? So we, you know, we spend time on definitions of genocide, the kind of uh, precursors to this. Um, we, look at, we look at perpetrators. We look at the memory of Holocaust, uh, of, of sort of Holocaust or of genocides. And, and, and so it's, it's, a, it's a much broader kind of view of, of genocides. Um, and uh, obviously, the Holocaust is is is, is probably you know the, the most best known of of these, unfortunately. But it's um, it's uh, it's kind of a it's a it's a course that really looks at the identification of other peoples as the other, mm. and what we've done to these people over over time. So that's that's the one course. And then, of course, the other course is um, is a f- is a fourth year uh, graduate. Sorry, fourth year seminar on the Holocaust, which uh, used to be taught by our uh, colleague Carmel Patris, who uh, ha, who retired several years ago, and it hasn't been taught. And I was just recently at a at a meeting with Niagara High School teachers, mm-hmm. and this was uh, organized with a colleague, my colleague Andrew McDonald, who was trying to just you know let high school history teachers know what we do at the university level so they can perhaps convey how, how what to expect when their students get to university. But I remember having kind of a, a lunch after and some of the teachers saying, oh, yeah, no, I've, I've asked questions about, like, does anybody, anybody know what the, what the Holocaust, or, or start talking about the Holocaust, and people are like, what, what's the Holocaust? Mm-hmm. So that's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a disturbing kind of thought. So I think it's, it's important then to, um, to ensure that, that Brock, you know, offers, of course, a, a course on the Holocaust and on genocides, uh, more, more broadly. And, um, so, uh, so that's, that's, that's the plan for at least the next little while. Yeah. Um, how do you teach, like, how, how, how do you go about teaching these really heavy Topics. I know we've talked a little bit about what it's like to research them, and um, listeners might remember my interview with uh, Dr. Christina Santos, um, who also uh, researches um, these kinds of traumatic, traumatic um, events in uh, Latin America. What about teaching them and introducing students, or possibly because our classrooms are diverse, um, teaching them to students who have life experience or family memories of, of these kinds of traumatic events? I mean, other than like offering a, a kind of blanket statement at the beginning of the course that this, you know, you're going to be dealing with very difficult subject matter, it is uh, difficult. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, like I've, there's been times 
especially now that I have kids myself, that, you know, things that I used to be able to research in my 20s where for some reason I, it seemed, I was even more divorced from it. Uh, now I find it very, very difficult. I mean, there's works, for example, like one of the classic works by Christopher Browning, Ordinary Men, in which he tries to kind of look at the personnel in this German order police unit that was in occupied Poland and who was tasked with essentially murdering like women and children. And so I'm like, most of them. <laughs> no, that's, that's completely understandable. Yeah, it's like these triggers. Like yeah. it's, it was just, it's just the fact that, that somebody could do that. And so you throw it out as students and, and you can see the students really struggle with this because how, there's one thing about dropping a bomb from an airplane, you know, 30,000 feet in the, in the sky. Uh, but there's, there's another thing when you're actually walking with the victim and then, and then tasked uh, with murdering this person for, 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 for nothing that they've done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, according to this kind of sick ideology. So, so it, is, it is difficult. And um, generally when we have these kind of, they're, they're seminar discussions. These are seminar uh, courses. They're not lecture courses. You can kind of uh, judge it from the, the reactions in, in, in the room. Uh, and I will say that um, they've all been very respectful. Even I, I don't have to tell people, I don't have to tell students this. They, they realize they're dealing with weighty issues. But I think they also understand that, and some of them are really motivated by this, is that why did this occur? And do we see elements of this in our own world? And what are the, tr- what are the warning signs of this? And mm-hmm. I think that really, at our last discussion is exactly that. It's like, how do we end genocides? And if anything, I, I have to say that that's probably the most, in some ways, uh, the most depressing kind of, <laughs> because it often t- turns into an issue of uh, where do states step in? Where do they exercise their sovereignty? Or where, where, where can you break a state's sovereignty when you know the state, for example, is, is committing mass murder against a minority, against its own population? And the fact that, you know, since the Holocaust, since World War II, we, we've allowed these things to, to occur again, right? And, 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 how is, and it really makes them think, how does, how does international, how does international um, power, how is, how is it exercised? Um, you know, what can an international criminal court do when we spend time on that as well? And, and it doesn't kill the idealism, but I think what it does is it really kind of identifies the fact that we're lacking in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's, there's work to be done here if, if we are forever going to put a dent in these kinds of behavior in, in the future. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Um, I have, I don't know if enjoyed is the right word. I mean, I do enjoy our conversations, um, even though they are very, very weighty subjects. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time to share that with us. And I will put some links in our show notes to some of your articles and uh, publications and that kind of thing as well for people who do want to learn more. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, brockuca humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Sound editing is by Serena Atella, and theme music is by Khaled Amam. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.